Hey, everybody, this is Lou Temple. You know me as Axel on The Walking Dead or Adam Banjo on The Devil's Rejects. And look, you should all just drop in to You're Scared Stupid. Scared Stupid Podcast will get you all the information you need to do and put a smile on your face and a tear in your heart. <laughs> Scared Stupid. Hello, all my funky fiends out there. It is I, the ghost host with the most, the phantom of foolish, your guide to the ghoulish, the grand duke of spook, Chris Bell. Yes, and joining me in studio as always, super producer of the spooky year, Terry Snow. What's up, man? Yeah, did you see, I, I kind of changed it up a little bit this time. Oh, that's what's up. It's yeah. a very special edition. It's a special edition episode. Bonus. Uh, joining us also, as always, is my emotional support alien, the unaffected Roswell. <laughs> that's, that's what you hear in your head. He's talking. Yeah. He's like, call me the unaffected. You got it, bro. <laughs> yeah. He speaks telepathically, so yeah. Just in case nobody knew that, <laughs> okay. we've we've covered it. Come on, guys. Well, if anybody knew, they're like, uh, "Do you just introduce an alien that doesn't talk?" No, like, no, I didn't. He talks to me telepathically, and I let you all know what's going on. They have no use for mouths anymore. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are on a very, very special edition of Scared Stupid. We are going to be cranking out a couple of episodes this month, Terry. Mm. So here's one special for you. The very special, special. 420 episode oh. of Scared Stupid. That's right, Terry. This whole month is 420. Yes. Which is Stoner Christmas. <laughs> it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be. Until the scary shit started <laughs> yeah, happening. Until all the, that's the scared that's the scared part of Scared Stupid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was supposed to be fun, then it turned into a horror movie. Yeah. Which is normally what happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we want to talk about one of the most integral parts of a horror movie. Mm-hmm. The stoner. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, he's he's a miles. He's a key player in any great horror movie. You got to have the stoner for sure. And then you know, from that has also come a whole world of stoner horror movies. It's true. So today, Terry, I think what we need to do is introduce a new segment. Oh, that's right. It's the SP Double O K. Double OKY, spooky. Nice. This, yeah, spooky segment of the eve. Stoners of Spookville. That's right. Here we are talking about our favorite stoner movies, our favorite stoners from movies. He literally came up with that like three seconds ago. Yeah. That's pretty good, bro. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Just, just so y'all know, half of this, all of this is unscripted. <laughs> we just, we come out swinging to the theme song of Snoop Dogg's Hood of Horrors. Nice. That's a good one to kind of start off with yeah. because who other than the godfather of rap, mm-hmm. the dog father of rap, pardon me, Mr. Snoop D-O-double-G. Yes. Through this music video, he becomes more of a demon. Yeah. Wow. He's, yeah, he's like the gatekeeper. Have you ever seen Hood of Horrors? I have not. Oh, man. Is it that, good? That's a good, it's like an anthology mm. series, and Snoop Dogg is like oh, I the have gatekeeper. Seen it, yep. Yeah, okay. man. Super great movie. <laughs> Super great movie. Danny, Danny Trejo's in it. Mm-hmm. He's one of the, yeah. I think I watched this on HBO one night when I was like 13. Exactly. That's <laughs> when all of us watched it. Yeah, that, makes <laughs> that makes sense. I was like, what is going on? Yeah. So if you've never gotten to check out Hood of Horrors, we're giving you one right out of the gate. Check yeah. that one out. Hood of Horrors. Stoner horror movie. 
So Terry, tell me about your favorite stoner horror movies. Um, I, or your favorite stoners from movies. Uh, Idle Hands is a really good uh, horror comedy. Yes. That's a great stoner uh-huh. uh, horror movie. It's pretty much starts off with them smoking weed, and that's mostly what it's surrounded by. His right. girlfriend breaks up with him for being a stoner. Uh, um, Jessica Alba. Mm-hmm. She's super hot in that movie. <laughs> that was like one of her first movies. But Idle Hand is a classic that not a lot of people talk about, and it's hilarious. Right. Centered around two stoners. His friend dies, come back, comes back. Um, and then I haven't seen it in a while, but it has something to do with uh, a dismembered hand yes. taking over things. <laughs> it's been a while. I watched it a bunch when I was like a teenager. Idle hands. Idle hands. There you go. And then, of course, um, I mean, a, a newer one would be like Cabin in the Woods. You know? Yes. Um, there was a, I mean, you know, Cabin in the Woods took a little bit of everything, uh, mm-hmm. but an integral part of that was the stoner. He's right. Pretty much the main character. Yes. He made it, made it to the end and. And he was the only one that saw through all the bullshit because right. he kept smoking different weed or like <laughs> yeah. something like like they they said they like they did something to his weed but he had like a different batch like that's how yep. deep into it he was. <laughs> Kevin in the Woods is great. Kevin in the Woods <laughs> is such a good movie. I actually just rewatched that like last week. Oh nice. And, yeah. Oh my god, so good. I, I love it when they're filtering through all the different monsters yeah. that they can use. There's like oh, Pennywise so is down there and. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of Easter eggs in that little scene. That's a great movie. One of the most well-done horror movies of all time because horror movies don't get budgets like that. Like, no. Ever. And um, the actors they had in it, mm-hmm. fucking Thor is in that movie. <laughs> well, well, I'm glad Josh Whedon did that because horror movies don't get that type of budget. And honestly, it's from their success because uh-huh. horror movies do so well with such little money mm-hmm. that like companies don't throw money at them because they're like, make a movie for $100,000, we will make a million off of it just right. because. So to... For Josh Whedon to go out on a limb like that, even though I'm not his biggest fan, and make a horror movie like that is really good. I think so. Yeah. I definitely loved Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, hundred percent. It was great. All right, him and him and Drew Goddard supposedly wrote that in three days. Really? In an apartment. So I'm sh- assuming there's a lot of blowing involved. That had to be like <laughs> three straight days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, Writing I'm on the behind the scenes. Yeah. Or a lot of smoking, maybe. Yeah. Know, a little bit of both. A little bit of both. They're like, you know who never gets a fucking chance to win? Yeah. The stoner. <laughs> they did coke all day and smoked all night. So yeah. That's usually how it goes. See? That's a great combination. That's how you make a done. movie. Yeah, that is how you make a movie. I promise you that's more accurate than a stoner. <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> so, my pick mm-hmm. for some spooky stoner movies, mm-hmm. Shrooms. Okay. Absolutely loves. I know it's. it's a, I know it's not so much <laughs> a stoner movie. Psychedelic. It's a psychedelic movie though, and it's great to watch while you're high. No, it's not. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? No, that's a legit scary movie. Like that is not a good one to watch while you're high. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> psychopath. That fucking cow is. Like, I see that thing in my dreams. Okay. Yeah. There's but, some. There's some funny parts, but. <laughs> I mean, don't be like because shrooms is like legit scary yeah like a lot of stoner horror movies are like goofy. very comedic and goofy yeah. um but i mean even cabin in the woods is pretty gory but uh this yeah. is just legit scary yeah shrooms like. is legit scary for sure <laughs> <laughs> i mean i could watch it high but like not like the no vices or anything like that <laughs> right right like you you need to watch it before so yeah, you know yeah. what's going like just stick to like some trauma stuff first yeah <laughs> some trauma full moon stuff <laughs> 
Just to ease in. You know, a little bit of uh, what is it, Leprechaun Back to the Hood. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Leprechaun. Wasn't there was a thing in that, right? Where, yeah, didn't he get high? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he smokes weed in a, in a you know, and uh, gives up some of his gold. Nice. You know, he's hunting for it. He nice. rips a motherfucker's gold tooth out and right. all that shit. Oh, yeah. That was like, there was like this time in the early 2000s where they launched like the, uh, the urban horror thing where they're trying to appeal to the urban youth, I guess they did like Killjoy. Yes. Have you ever seen like the first two Killjoys are just straight up like, like cheap, like rap video movies. Right. <laughs> um, the, the next three are fantastic. Except the last one was weird, but yeah, I, there was like a time where they were trying to do that, like trying to get in on that market, I guess, because uh-huh. I guess they assumed urban audiences weren't really watching enough horror movies. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to bring you this one movie that uh, it's called Terror Tunes. Okay. It's not so much a stoner comedy, but a good <laughs> movie to watch stoned. Right. It's, um, I, I actually had to go in high school. We went to this like film conference thing for our media class uh-huh. and we met the director of this guy and our te- of this movie uh-huh. and our teacher was like, this is the guy you need to learn from. Like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> okay. And I was like, okay, cool. And then we go home and like, I got a copy of the movie years later. Uh-huh. It's terrible. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it has Terry like tunes. this crazy, like there's like cartoon animation in the real world. Oh, very Mary Poppins. Very Mary Poppins. <laughs> if Mary Poppins had like a fifty dollar budget, hell yeah, <laughs> it, able to, it makes no sense. It's like if mm. it's like if Tiny Toons strictly did like the oh, the directors horror. of yeah, yeah they did horror. Oh, that's crazy. Uh, needless to say, those uh, urban movies did not work out, or those companies because yeah. <laughs> it turns out you know when you're. Um, struggling for survival, you don't really want to watch a horror movie. No, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, let's let's target to inner city poor people. <laughs> and they're right not watching enough horror movies. <laughs> life like, is horror. Their life's a fucking horror movie. <laughs> you assholes. <laughs> I can't believe somebody thought that was a good idea. <laughs> like, what, what, market aren't, what market aren't we hitting? What market aren't we hitting? <laughs> Only getting, like, uh, teenaged, white, rich white kids. <laughs> there we go. We know. <laughs> You know, another good horror franchise by the king of stoners, mm-hmm. Mr. Tommy Chong, oh, yeah. brings us Evil Bong. Oh, there you go. There's Full Moon. That's a good ease into a horror yeah, movie. <laughs> there you go. See, and I think there's like two or three of them, oh, dude, if they, not four. They just did Evil Bong versus the Ginger Dead Man. Yes. <laughs> I had no idea that existed. Yeah, yeah. See, all those like $5 horror movies, like Super Shark versus Mega Megalodon. <laughs> those are like the best <laughs> Yeah, that's a it's full moon. Full moon. Uh-huh. They took over the uh, Killjoy franchise after okay. the first two. So there we go. See, yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, full moon. They do the uh, the uh, evil bong, ginger dead man. They do the new Killjoys. Uh-huh. Um, they do a bunch of shit. All oh, that's so good. <laughs> well, they, they got famous from doing the Puppet Master series, of course, You're right? And stuff like that. They've really been riding that Puppet Master money for like. Heck yeah, they years. Have. <laughs> years. They were like, we got it. We nailed it one time, and that's all we needed. Well, I'm pretty sure he just takes the royalty monies and makes all these like cheap fucking horror movies. Right? <laughs> it's like trauma with like Toxic Avenger and stuff like that. But see, it's so good. Yeah. So fucking good. Like, you took a chance, and it worked out. Yeah. And you know, that's what our, uh, our up-and-coming interviewee likes to talk about with these young up-and-comers oh, yeah, yeah. that are willing to take chances. <laughs> well, Troma was up-and-coming, and then they were just like, we're just going to stay 
Not really. They're like the only film company company in New York City that works without a union. It's hilarious. They're like, we're doing it how we want to do it, and that's awesome because that's how we do it, Terry. Yeah, we do it how we want. That'll do probably it. be us. Yeah, <laughs> like the only film company in twenty years not running without a union. <laughs> Fuck it. Fuck it. We don't need it. What Screen Actors Guild? Yeah, dude. <laughs> Fucking come and work. You just get your ass to work. <laughs> Uh, very a uh, uh, toe pooper of us. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> First Texas Chainsaw. Uh, like John, how was it like working with Tobe? He's a real fucking dick. He's a real fucking dick. But you know, Bill Mosley loved Toby Hooper. Yeah, that's weird. But Bill Mosley's also an incredible smartass. But and, <laughs> and to be fair, he got Tobe with a fucking budget. Hell yeah! He didn't get in the desert, right. fucking <laughs> grinding out Tobe. Numero uno, Tobe. <laughs> yeah. He got <laughs> exactly. He got fucking relaxed. I got a hit, Tobe. And I fucking wear this in the desert, Tobe. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, with all these young up and comers, you know, I want to bring us to our to our interview of the segment of the show, Terry. Yes. Because our interview for this episode is none other than the amazing Lou Temple. Yeah. Lou was one of the most inspirationally motivational, like people (laughs) that I've ever met. Yeah. He's such a nice guy. So just over the top, nice Mm -hmm. with everything. And I hope to get a chance to interview him again, work with him again and talk with him again. Yeah. I mean, he went for a while, so y'all gonna be here for a minute. Yeah. (laughs) So that's why, that's why we brought you a special edition a new segment, mm-hmm. you know, for this very special month mm-hmm. and a very awesome interview for everyone to listen to. So sit back, relax, put those headphones on, put us on your TV, pump us through your speakers wherever you are, and listen to this fantastic interview with none other than Mr. Lou Temple. Welcome back, welcome back, my funky fiends. It is I, the Grand Duke of Spook, Chris Bell, and joining me in studio, as you know, we do those in-studio interviews, is none other than Axel from The Walking Dead, Psychohead from 31, the man with the hottest banjo hand this side of Ruggsville, the Texican Lou Temple. Wow, what an introduction. Thank you, Chris <laughs> Bell. That's, uh, that's, that's funky and, uh, <laughs> and fantastic and feverish. Hey, man. Uh, of which I hope none of our listeners are, by the right. way. In, this, in these times, let's not let's not push that card. But thank you. That's a great introduction. I like your uh, energy hey. as you come into play. Thanks hey. for having me, by the way. Hey, thank you for being here. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And I know my listeners are psyched out of their minds to hear all about you. <laughs> Oh, that's fun. Yeah, we, uh, we've we met a lot of them, and, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to, to meeting more, and this is a great conduit to reaching out and, uh, and sharing. You know, um, one of the things that's interesting on The Walking Dead, and yeah. I'm sure we'll have quite a discussion oh, metaphorically, yeah. but, but in general, we felt like the family was containing of the audience. So we referenced um, the audience as as part of the team, and never very often did we refer to them as fans. You're, right. you're, you're actually, as an audience member, you're responsible to participate, to yes. engage, to offer thought and opinion, to send out um, instructive, simpatico vibes, and all, all these, um, you know... Uh, ideals that we just felt was part of the cohesiveness of putting on such a great presentation. 
And I think that was a big part of the success. So there's a huge respect there. And I can tell that you, with yeah. your audience, have a lot of respect for each other. And so oh, that, yes. that, that doesn't go unnoticed, and it, and it speaks to the quality of your programming, sir. Well, thank you so much for saying that. And I was going to say, you know, I noticed there's not a lot of shows that give you that opportunity to feel like you're more than just a fan, to feel like you are part of this experience, because this experience wouldn't be happening unless you had people to watch it and listen to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think when you start um, building that type of uh, presentation, it, it, it starts as a grass fire. And then it, it becomes a movement and then it becomes a, a, a revolution. And, and these are how really things get done. And, and we should not, um, we should not underestimate the, the power of, of small and scrappy. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> my, opinion, my opinion. And for whatever, if anyone's not aware, we're going through a bit of a crisis out there. Um, so I'm just going to give you a, a life spoiler but um, we're going to get through this, and oh, yeah. the return of on the other side of this, in my opinion, is potentially going to be small and scrappy. So, in other words, the the big the big networks that we all love and, mm-hmm. and we're binging on right now, the big productions, the studios, these things that yeah. have served us and will continue to, they might be a little. Um, you know, they might be a little delayed in getting their resources and right. getting everything on on the push. But I think the small and scrappy independent films and some independent TV this might be this might be a, a door opening for some independent TV. Uh, this is this these are the types of things that uh, are trying to find a place. Yeah. And there's going to be some networks that are, are are saying, "Hey, we need some product, and you've got this thing all ready to go. Let's go." Right. Uh, th- this could be entirely uh, a great opportunity for for people, and for someone like myself in, in the industry, though I get to work at the h- highest level in studio and network, but I also do a fair share of independent film work yes. and independent television work. So this this presents itself opportunistically to to bounce on the bounce and be part of that. Um, you know, that first wave, those, those, those angels that are going to, are going to go out first. And I I think they're going to be young and scrappy, dude. Hey, that's what we're hoping for. That's, that's what we're trying. I know, uh, Doug Bradley, Mr. Pinhead told me that I should, uh, I should change my, that I had to change the name of my program to a young and upcoming fella. That was, (laughs) yeah. Young and upcoming is always, uh, you know, that's attractive young and upcoming. I mean, um, that's always going to get you a meeting. You know, just on your resume, any all any of you listeners out there, for whatever you do, just always say I'm young and upcoming, <laughs> um, and you're you're gonna get your resume from the uh, bin pile, delete to um, okay. Let's take another look. We got to look at right. someone, and young and upcoming is always. Uh, does he have any qualifications? I don't know, but he's young and upcoming. He's perfect. Right <laughs> he's now. perfect. So yeah, Chris, See? you are. Young and upcoming. Well, thank you so much. That's, I mean, that is sage advice from the man himself. So, Lou, from, from someone that's old and, and going away. No right. way. <laughs> uh, uh, that's the other end of things. Although I think that uh, you know we're leaning on some wisdom right here. It's oh, absolutely. Interesting, though, if you're if you're you know observing this whole process, 
and you're having a chance to check in on your elders, your mm-hmm. parents and your grandparents, and in conversation, you know, you're trying to find some, some place to feel good. And, and a lot of times where we go is to uh, memories mm-hmm. and bygone times and nostalgia. And, and in that course of conversation, you might actually inquire and say, you know, Granddad, can you remember anything like this? And yeah. he will potentially or probably say, absolutely not, which yeah. is unheard of. Right. You know, he might reference the Great Depression. He might reference some, some, some fever, you know, right. yellow fever. He might reference a, a cholera, or uh, I think probably back then it was, uh, uh, what was the lung, like uh, uh, the, emphysema, uh, yeah, you know, uh, so, so, but anything like this, it's unprecedented. Therefore, the young and upcoming will be the voice of this experience. Yeah. And I think the scientists are recognizing, so all of you young and upcomers from the age of, you know, I don't want to put too much on you, but if you're eight years old, yeah. it's your turn to tell this story. Going back to what I said about nostalgia and bygone times mm-hmm. and trying to feel good with memories. Yeah. Well, that's storytelling. That's, and that's, that's what we do. That's what Chris, Chris and I do. <laughs> and, and you listen out there. That's right. So this is no different. And now it's your story to tell. My favorite line, I think that I go, I, I live by is from a movie that I did. I uh-huh. didn't say it. Uh-huh. Great spirit from the West said it, but I was in the movie. It was a movie called Rango. Yeah. And it was a, uh, it was an animated feature, uh, and 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 we uh, we set out to to do really well, and we did. By goodness, we won an Oscar. And in that yeah. movie, there's so many great metaphoric lines. And but but the spirit of the West says to Rango, he said, "No man can walk out on his own story. So tell yours." And I think that's important yes. in life to know, because Chris, you're telling your story each week, talking to whomever or having. Um, a passion for something. And, and so that's what I would offer today. And so you, you young and upcomers, this is your turn to tell the story of what yes. is going on and, and the story of, of our, the sages and how they experienced and provided experience, but not much. They no no one's got a lot of experience. With right. This. So we're, we're all going through it together. My, you know, my, experience in in social distancing uh-huh. typically has been about my moods if i'm you know grumpy right. and yelling you know stay off my lawn well <laughs> there's that uh i've got a lot a fair share of that but you know what we're really doing at trader joe's that's uh that's something that a 10 year old can yeah easily understand and have a better expression of it than what well, I don't you know social distancing you don't get too close to anybody or right. well, no here's why we're not getting close to anybody exactly um, you know so all these things anyway I digress <laughs> you, you should start your interview I don't That's know what not, the heck we're doing here no we're having a great conversation is what we're doing here <laughs> alright all so right. thank you for indulging well, in my 
verbiage. <laughs> I loved it, though. So, Lou, tell the people out there where you kind of got your start when when you were young and up and coming. When where did yeah, you up and I, come? It's a, that's a good story because it wasn't as young and up and coming as I want. Okay, it, it, it was in one regard because my real start it, it always comes from the root. It always comes from a seed. You know, it's mm-hmm. funny when you go plant a garden, which I hope that folks are. Can, uh, considering doing because it's a, it's a great activity and B it, it could be very serviceable for some some fresh produce but if you got yes. a garden box and you can get out there and plant a seed if you go plant that seed and then spend some time wondering about how is it that I put this little seed in the ground in dirt uh-huh. add a little water and then all of a sudden this thing takes root and grows well the earth that you're planting it in uh, understands whatever that uh, seeds need is and vibration and it understands the seed its seeds desire to to yeah. sprout and to bloom and so there's this frequency that it all gets on you know simpatico well i like to call that passion i like yeah. to refer to that as your passion chris you're very passionate about your podcast you're very passionate about presenting to your audience uh, a very thoughtful a very informative a very you know, interesting and and experience with your podcast. That's a passion. And so my passion to start with, and I want everyone to kind of give themselves time to think about the passion in these coming days. Mm -hmm. Mine was as a young boy, nothing to do with acting. Heck, I didn't even know what actors were. I thought that (laughs) those people on television were really those people on television. Couldn't believe that, you know, there was Castaway stuck on an island, and how did we get to film them? And, you know, Gilligan <laughs> right. and, and it's Steve Austin was really the $6 million man. I didn't know who Lee Majors was. Right. Um, <laughs> it, you know, which was, of course. for me, that was that. But who I did know about was baseball players, Major League Baseball players. So uh-huh. I loved baseball, and I played baseball, and I learned baseball, and I ate, slept, drank baseball, and I, I did everything baseball. I studied baseball. I spent as much time in baseball encyclopedias as I did out playing it from sunup to sundown and in my dreams and in my sleep and flashlights in bed and baseball cards, the whole thing. (laughs) And baseball took me through high school to college on a baseball scholarship. I got good enough to go to a baseball uh, school and play baseball down in Florida at a small college called Rollins, which had a great education. It had a great acting school, Chris, that yeah. I poo-pooed. There were two <laughs> people that were deans of the of the theater there. Uh-huh. One was a man by the name of Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, ah. <laughs> and another was Olympia Dukakis, two brilliant actors. And I'd, I'd walk by that uh, you know, study hall, the theater department, and I'd laugh. Look at those sillies on my way to the ballpark where I played baseball. <laughs> Lo and behold, as a um, uh, junior, I got drafted by the Seattle Mariners to go out and play professionally. Wow. And so I went out and did that for as long as my talent would allow me, which was, you know, three and a half, four years. And then wow. after playing, I was offered the opportunity to continue a career in professional baseball. At that point, I was with the Houston Astros in Houston and become a coach wow. that uh, morphed into becoming a, a scout and out looking for talent and then continued to evolve into um, a, a front office uh you, you know, yeah. to being groomed to run a team and 
all these things. And so baseball just continued to be my vocation, my life, my my love. And when I say love, I'm talking, you know, 10,000 hours. I'm, I'm wow. totally beyond that. And then, but I was always a gregarious young man, and I was always uh, an entertaining type of guy, and I always had a sense of of story, you know, I think, yeah. uh, uh, in the basis of, of, uh, you know, New Orleans, that story is always paramount. So I always had, you know, you, you there's a story to tell and a story to listen to. I loved hearing stories and I love telling stories, all these yeah. things. So one day as a young man, and you know, <laughs> you know, single young man, I saw uh-huh. a young lady and I followed her into a building to, perhaps uh inquire as to an evening of uh of yeah. dinner yes, a yes. date no less and she walked into a theater uh-huh. and in that theater was an acting class of which they were doing something on stage that just caught my eye and said there's my people that's my tribe <laughs> and i can do that well i couldn't do that <laughs> couldn't do that at all but i thought i could and I started on the side pursuing that. Now, this is after having a career and really going forward in a career. I was yeah. well on my way to being a general manager of a major league baseball team. Or at least that was that was my goal, and there right. was no reason that I couldn't achieve it. And this young lady um, in Houston, Texas, said, well, this is an acting class, and this is what I'm interested in. And I'm like, well, I'm interested in it. And, <laughs> and I, I started to kind of separate my ideals a little bit and I started pursuing uh, side hobby uh, interest and then it got a little uh, a little more in in depth and I got more engrossed in it and then um, a thing happened this team that I was working for was sold to a new owner and there was there was new management coming in and fortunately for me I knew the new management and and at some point, interestingly enough, I had secured an opportunity to go out and do a movie. I was out. Uh, I had taken uh, my vacation time, and I, it was in the winter. Yeah. And I went to – I came here to Los Angeles and to Oakland, California. We were, I was part of a movie called Angels in the Outfield. For yes. And I was – playing catch with Matthew McConaughey every day and hanging out because I'd been a baseball player and they liked that. And I didn't really, I was just kind of a, a an extra, to be yeah. honest. I had a couple lines, but, and Matthew had a couple lines. And, but I got a call. The team's been sold. Your position is, look, don't worry about coming back anytime too soon. And I said, oh, so I did go back. And the general manager at the time said, look, here's the thing. I think you have this other calling that you're interested in, this other passion. Mm-hmm. Baseball's a life game. If you don't take the opportunity to fly out this window right now, you may never because this will consume you, this game, which it already has. And he said, I'm not firing you, but I'm not rehiring you. I'm kicking you out of this nest. And I was, I was right. not happy about that. Well, yeah. And then, um, but I had her, his his voice. His name was Bob Watson. Uh, he was a great baseball player, and he was becoming a general manager. And he 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 was the first black general manager in Major League Baseball, and he was a great oh, cool. guy, and he still is. And his voice echoed in my mind when I went to secure another job and serendipitously, which was at that time there was a major league strike, and there was no there's no jobs to be had, and I. Mm-hmm. 
I decided then and there, I'm going to take his advice and pursue this. And the, I went back to school in Brooklyn College and learned uh, with Stanley Zeroff and about acting, about blocking, about physicality, about voice work, about um, subtext, about emotion and character and script analyzation and all of these things that were great discoveries and continued to be great discoveries. And that was my slow, my, my false start in my acting career, unlike so many others, but a perfect start for me. So for all of you out there, there's of course, never one way to do anything, but in today's arena with as much product as we have and as much opportunity it really is available to everyone yeah uh, as long as you keep in mind no man and when i say that i mean woman or man man yeah. uh not a gender discrepancy but no man can walk out on his or her own story and yes. um i think as long as you tell your story which is basically shakespeare's speech to thine own self be true uh, -huh. uh you're going to be great you're going to be great. It's an interesting perspective because so much of the time when you're young and um, upcoming, yeah. you think that you have to please and or present in a certain way. But the reality of what it is, this is sage advice, is that mm -hmm. nobody really wants to see what you think they want to see. They actually just want to see you. And that's the last thing you think that anybody wants to get to know is me. Right. But that's only what people really want to see. I don't want to see you doing an, an impression of Jack Nicholson or, right. or Matthew McConaughey. I want to see you do you, Chris. And right. that's your, your, your story. And that's what's going to engage me. So um, that would be yes. my other piece of advice entirely. And such good advice it is. I mean, people out there, if you listen, I mean, this is this is as good as advice as you're going to get from anybody is to just do it. Be true to yourself and don't let what people tell you put you down. Be yourself. Yeah, it'll always be your greatest tool, your greatest skill. And you've obviously being you. been so successful from following this advice. I know... I know one of my first introductions to you was in uh, The Devil's Rejects. So I, I want to ask you, was horror always kind of a genre you lean towards, or is that just kind of where you found a good spot to, to go in at? Yeah, that's a good question, and it's, it's, a, it's an interesting answer. At the end of the day, I didn't have a large interest or expertise or sense of horror as a genre at all. I had mm -hmm. typically come out of stage and theater, which interestingly enough, there's not a lot of horror plays. I think there's more developed right. now, at least psychological tear. But back yeah. then, a mousetrap was a, uh, a, you know, a horror right. play. But in theater, there wasn't, you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show, right. you know, a parody of that movie. But, but other than that, so no, I didn't have a lot of exposure to horror, nor was I as a child. I wasn't developed by, by an interest in horror. So, yeah. uh, I was introduced to 
the, the casting director, Monica Mickelson, was Rob Zombie's casting director at that time. And she had cast mm-hmm. me in a movie, which I ended up not doing because I was sick, oh. uh, interestingly enough, a movie called Serving Sarah. And uh-huh. uh, digression there on a short story, uh, um, I was replaced by Mike Judge in that movie, which I always <laughs> like uh, to, to say. And so Monica remembered me and brought me in to uh, audition for the role of Adam Banjo. And I read this script and I was like, oh, my God, I've never read anything like this. So the first three pages, you've got this giant dragging this female corpse through the woods. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. what the heck is this? <laughs> and, and then um, so I go in to read an audition. And at that time. Rob Zombie was a little ahead of the curve because he is, was, is so respectful of the actor's process. And he's a performer mm-hmm. himself, keep in mind, right. that he wouldn't actually sit in. He felt it was, it was a discredit for him to sit in judgment in an audition. So I'd just like you to do these auditions on tapes, and then I'll look at them. Okay. And it was totally out of respect. So I'm going into tape with Monica, but I'm sitting there and across from me is Steve Zahn and next to him is Jeremy Davies. These are two actors who I had really known and studied and recognized that their their type of trajectory was going to be my type of trajectory. And I was like, wow. So I do the read. It comes off pretty good. There's a certain colloquial uh, bravado to Adam Banjo that mm-hmm. just was connected. But Rob saw even more than that, sort of a southern Rob Zombie in me, oddly. I'm not comparing myself to Rob, but I'm just saying there's this just wiry kind of, you know, scrappy guy that I like what he's bringing to the party. I went directly from that audition like two days later to the Austin South by Southwest Film Festival, and I'm at a buddy's place, and I get a call from Monica. Rob really likes you, and he liked your read and you're down on the short list, this could happen, just letting you know. And when you're coming back, I'm like, oh, you know, I'll be back tomorrow. I don't know. Um, But the reality was I was really nervous. I was very nervous because I didn't know Rob Zombie, and I didn't know this genre. (laughs) And so I called a friend of mine who had worked with Rob Zombie, Mm-hmm. A good Southern boy named Walton Goggins, who had done House of a Thousand yep. Corpses. My favorite scene, he and Bill Mosley, oh, yeah. uh, with the execution scene, which I yes. think is brilliant. And that camera move, dolly up. Mm-hmm. Um, so he said, Lou, do yourself a favor. I said, well, Walton, I'm a good Christian boy from the South, and this devil worship <laughs> this rocks on, you know. I mean, not literally. And and. Walton did exactly what you're doing, Chris, and all your audience is doing. And he's laughing, <laughs> and he said, "Do yourself a favor. Go out there and do that movie. You're gonna, you're gonna have an incredible creative experience, and you're gonna make a friend for life and Rob Zombie. And it's gonna be great." So yeah. I took that word to heart, and lo and behold, I did get the opportunity. And Walton was as right as rain, and Rob and I hit hit it off famously. Uh, I had an amazing experience working on Devil's Rejects for so many reasons, but the main reason was it introduced me to the genre that you have inquired about, Chris. I didn't know about horror, and if people don't know about horror, real horror, I mean horror from the sage uh, shamans of horror, which were what that team was about. So we're at the table read, and you've got you've got Sid Haig, God rest his soul. You've got mm-hmm. Bill Mosley. 
you've got Ken Flore, you've you've got uh, William Forsyth. So all of a sudden, we're doing a table read. Now I've done table reads, and this wasn't my first rodeo. I've been right. on films, I've been on big movies, I've been on studio, way bigger movies than this. Yeah. But man, that table read was like the Super Bowl, and all <laughs> of a sudden, those cats were bringing it. Right. A level of intensity, a level of subtext, a level of underpinning, undertone, dark, you know, uh, um, motivated, I'm going to get what I need out of this. And it brought everyone's game up. Right. And then I noticed on set working with these guys, there's this impending posture that they have. There's this, they're, they're pushing into your personal space ever mm-hmm. so subtly. You can't even really notice it. The camera just barely picks it up, but it's enough to be unnerving. And so this then became my education in the horror genre. And Bill Mosley, you know, he spent a lot of time, and I know he's been one of your guests. He's, he, uh, he's fantastic. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of his and a good friend of his. And he spent a lot of time with me because I'm the type of guy that's always – inquiring, always searching. And he spent a lot of time with me talking about the genre, talking about one of the things, I don't know if he referenced it in y'all's interview, but he said, look, this genre allows me to do some work outside of he went that way. Yeah. You know, on a studio picture, I get to really build something in here. And I recognized that. And I recognized clearly through Otis what, what that was. And so it was an incredible learning experience to be on the devil's rejects with those giants. And I still maintain their giants, including uh, people like Doug Bradley, yes. Tony Todd, Robert England. There mm-hmm. is a certain, there's a certain essence that's passed down. And I worry about that essence Absolutely. as we, as we, um, oversaturate right. our, we oversaturate our genre yeah. I worry about that essence, not the, the time not getting taken. I, I, I wished everybody could have the experience of working, standing next to the imposing, formidable Sid Haig right. in a scene where, where even an eyebrow lift invades your personal space. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and so it's scary. And, yeah. and, I, and that fear shows up on camera. And that unsettled does. And so I, I just... I would love everyone to have that. I don't want that craftsmanship to get lost right. in our our continued, you know, push to put product out. So, right. um, so uh, you know, those are those are really behind the scene, yeah, uh, behind the closed door opportunities that I got to. And even with someone like my partner in the movie, Jeffrey Lewis, who played mm-hmm. Roy Sullivan. Being yep. able to um, spend time with him, you know, I'm Clint Eastwood's best friend. You can give me a card that said Clint Eastwood's best friend, or you know, when, whenever you're working in a film and you're working doing a scene with the lead, always put your hand on his shoulder. That way, they can't cut you out of the movie. There's a hand on the lead's shoulder. It's got to be someone, you know. I mean, that's, come on, that's that is just brilliant. brilliant. And yes. so it was just so much education and well and then and rob right in the middle of it so so rob yeah masterminding it all and he's got a great sense of story he's got a great sense of of drama he's got a great sense of humor actually 
And he, oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he's, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's just, so that movie was the perfect storm, was it not? I mean, we, right. we devil's rejects and we, we, you know, we, oh, yeah. we call that. And my, my point to that is that every character in there had a, at least a mini arc. And, and I'm not even yeah. talking about our characters. I'm, I'm talking about people that were in, you know, ever so slightly, you know, the, mm-hmm. the chicken man, you know, selling the, that, that chicken, right. uh, um, uh, you know, souls with, you know, clowns, yes. uh, you know, every character had an arc that was invested in and you could, you could root for everybody or root against everybody for mm-hmm. multiple reasons, you know, and, and, uh, that was special, really special. Um, well, well, you I made such like, an impact. Go ahead. No, yeah, go no. Ahead. You made such an impact coming in is what I was going to say that that you came in almost at a disadvantage that the others didn't have because people like Otis and Baby and Captain Spaulding were characters that were already established. They kind of knew where they needed to go, and you're coming into it with an entirely new face to establish. And it's something I, that I, I give Rob a lot of credit for for that. I, you know, his formula. And keep in mind. You know, this was his second movie. He had done right. House of a Thousand Corpses, and he'd be the first to say that was my film school. And they'd had trouble. You know, it didn't make sense to distributors. Mm-hmm. It didn't make sense to the studio. He had trouble getting it out. Right. But by the time we got around to getting the Devil's Rejects, he was great. Uh, not that he wasn't on Thousand Corpses. It just it was difficult. But this, right. I feel like we got the benefit of House of a Thousand Corpses. All yes. of us, from Bill Mosley to Sid Haig to Lou Temple. Rob trusted me to give a character arc that wasn't necessarily on the page. The Adam Banjo bravado. Yeah. The, you know, the I'm going to, you know, those, the, you know. Oh, yeah. Those, those you know, cocksuckers in Rugsdale ain't nothing but a bunch of chicken shit you know yeah that that guy that when the shit hits the fan he puts his wife's dress on yeah okay so rob trusted me to say look rob what i would like to do with adam is have a lot of talk on the front end uh Uh have a wear the dress when when the nitty gets to the gritty and then at the end have to fight with uh, you know, and die a hero's death mm-hmm. as, you know, fighting to the bitter end and almost winning. I can't win. I know we can't win, yeah. but we can go out nobly in the fight. And then the pain, the pain of losing your, your best friend, Roy, Roy, yeah. Roy, you know, and, and giving Otis all of that power right. to take. And so Rob, was on board with all of that to the point where, okay, Lou, so someone gets executed, um, you know, in front of you. What, what would you do? I'd say, I, I'm sure I'd lose my lunch. I'm sure I'd throw up. And he said, okay, let's get some Campbell's uh, clam chowder and chunky potato soup in here, and let's uh, get the cleanup team. We're going to do this three times. And Lou, have at it, you know. And I, so I was like, "Oh God, what did I, what did I get myself into right here?" Um, but it was a perfect thing. And then, of course, you know, it feeds Bill Mosley some fodder, and right. um, and so the, the, all of that was just, you know, I, I think I'm really proud of that, and proud of Rob too mm-hmm. for being part of that, right? And and 
And I've had moments with Rob Zombie, lots of them. They're mm-hmm. they're some of my best in in development. They're some of my my best experiences in in ideas, mm-hmm. and he right. always inspires me to do better. I always think I'm bringing my best in, and he will push a little bit farther on the envelope to get more in a better. Right. And I, I've never felt so, so I've never felt like that's ever failed. And so his instinct, his actor instinct, and I tell him often, I go, you know, you are a performer. Uh, You know, you can't act in one of your movies, but you could sure act in a Robert Rodriguez movie. You could sure be a character (laughs) in a Quentin Tarantino movie, you know, these things. And, you know, he he is on point, and uh, I'm grateful. Yeah, I mean, for so many reasons. Starting with Monica Mickelson, uh, followed up by um, Walton Goggins, and then you know, finally that Rob himself would say, "Yeah, this guy's this guy's on the team," oh, and yeah. uh, and I, you know, that's been that's been a real a real pleasure. So. Long answer to your question. No, I didn't start off looking for horror film, um, <laughs> but I, but I ended up there. See, and I mean, your character, the Banjo and Sullivan character, was so iconic that it was featured again in the El Super Bisto movie. Yeah, right at the end. That was so much fun. You wrote Dick oh, Soup. Was great. <laughs> Dick Soup. Yeah, you know. So Rob, at some point, he had uh, he had. He was really invested. Of course, he's a musician. And of course, you know, he's a product of the 70s like mm-hmm. myself. And he's he's well into, you know, 70s cool, which was cool. By the 80s, all that country stuff was real cheesy. Right. But the chicken fingers of the 70s. But by the way, that country stuff of the 80s is really cool right now. Oh, yeah. Um, like anything. And so he had, at some point, he was doing a radio show here in town back when there was live radio on a station called 101. And it was he and Steve Jones, or Jonesy's Jukebox. Actually, Rob had his own show before Jonesy's Jukebox. Maybe they shared. But he was like, you know, Lou, you play some music. Do you want to do an Adam Banjo, Banjo and Sullivan album? And I was like, heck yeah. And he goes, (laughs) what we'll do is we'll put it together and I'll play it. And so he kind of gave me license. Well, um, I had lived the movie, so I had a real idea about what that was thematically, yeah. what that album needed to be and what type of music we were going to be, Southern rock. So I called a good friend of mine, one of my best friends, Jesse Dayton, who is uh, a country musician, a troubadour, Americana music. Mm-hmm. And I brought him into L.A. We got uh, ourselves uh, a fifth of uh, Jim Beam. Yeah. And, and sat down, and one night we cranked out 10 of the easiest songs I've ever written and he would say the same <laughs> and they were all we wanted to do my, my approach was to come into it with a Randy Newman type of double yes. entendre meaning and so nothing everything was said but meant something else we also weren't going to use any curse words so that we couldn't get a parental advisory yes. although the the tone of it did end up getting a parental advisory so something <laughs> like Dick Soup or um, I'm at home getting hammered while she's out getting nailed, or I don't give a truck about the gas crisis, which was in the 70s then, but right. that's several since. 
um, uh, trying to quit, but I just quit trying. She didn't love me, but she <laughs> liked my money. You know, these were all, and I wanted to kind of do this theme album that used to happen in the 60s and 70s, like yes. Johnny Cash, Ride This Train, you know, and so that was sort of the whole tone. And each song had a template of, of, of a, a, a country song or musician, you know, whether it be um, Merle Hagger or Freddie Fender or, or um, George Jones or, you, you know, uh, we tried to follow all those tunes and then yeah. we took it down to Pertinalis, Texas, where we cut the album with Willie Nelson's studio and his session players and the Ditchy Chicks came in, Mandy Barnett uh-huh. uh, came in and sang backup vocals and we got a record deal out of, with Universal Records for Banjo and Sullivan. Classic, Rob then ended up playing on the radio. We dug up this great left-thinking southern rock band Almond brothers type band that toured in the 60s and then was murdered in a hotel room and so we had all this lore going on well before the devil's rejects and oh. then the devil's rejects comes out and it's wah 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 you know, right. uh, which was which was great but the songs have lived on and done so so great and as you said dick sue plays in uh, super el bisto yes i've always wanted always wanted rob to do uh, my pitch to him was always, let's do a Scooby-Doo crime mystery <laughs> cartoon with Banjo and Sullivan, and we'll have, uh, you know, we'll have uh, Brian Posehn's character, Jimmy yes. Via, uh, an armadillo, pet armadillo <laughs> that, that helps us, you know, so, and Rob was like, man, he was cool with it. I'm like, we got our good time van, uh, uh-huh. and we'll, our mystery mobile, we got the van, and we'll just go out, and then Rob did, um, Super El Bisto, which was entirely, anyone that's done animation, all you animators out there, you know this, mm-hmm. it's very labor-intensive, and, um, and Rob's like, I'm, I'm not doing a cartoon. <laughs> and it, it, you rely on so many other people. It's, now, right. that being said, Rob is an incredible artist. He, uh, uh, yeah. And, uh, pencil on paper, uh, you know, that's where he comes from. That's, that's his, his root is, is graphic artistry. His root is, is cartoon, uh, comic book drawing. His, you know, and, wow. and he realized, who's going to read my comics if I'm nobody? I should go get famous. And uh, <laughs> this, this rock and roll might work. Rock and roll Even though I help. can't, you know, I don't, I don't really, I'm not a killer guitarist, uh, but I can find one. But I can uh, find so, one. <laughs> so, yeah, so I did follow up with uh, Super El Bisto. See, loved that. And then, you know, you've made an appearance in quite a few of Rob's films, like Halloween. And then in 31, you're kind of on the other side of the table. The tables have turned. You're coming yeah. in a psycho head. Yeah, that was so interesting. You know, it started a little bit in Halloween. Um, Rob, you know, he invited me to do that. I, I might have been one of the top, you know, first one or two people cast. Mm-hmm. And and Danny Trejo was as well. And he said, this time, Lou, I want you to be the, the asshole. And Danny, you're going to be the good guy in this one. So let's just switch that. <laughs> and, um, and Lou, so I, I sort of want everything to bite that you're doing. And Danny, um, you know, you can read. So Danny and I, you know, we're, were these orderlies in, in the um, Smithville uh, sanatorium. And, yes. and 
I'm doing everything I can to get under Danny's skin, and he's doing everything he can to turn the other cheek, so to speak, right. because I'm really being racist uh, in a really unsettling right. way. And then, of course, my whole, you know, as I said, it's all about arcs, and my whole approach was to get Michael Myers, this big dummy, this big powerful dummy under my thumb. And my whole ideal was if I can get him to do something ugly, Mm-hmm. then I've got power over him. It's the little guy needing power over the big guy. And, right. and the script got flipped on me rather, you know, right. rather shortly. <laughs> and so Rob was, again, you know, helping me develop that character. And, and, and so we had an incredibly difficult um, scene to do where we take one of the patients and, and we literally rape her, which right. is unsettling in and of itself and how we did it in front of Michael Myers. And my point was to get him engaged in this ugly activity so that he would be just as bad as we were. And then to even maybe get down dirty with him, man. And it was really ugly and very difficult and everybody involved, which included a guy that was playing my cousin, uh, um, Courtney Gaines, uh, was there and the, and the young lady that we had was had done a um, she had been nude in Rob's uh, uh, werewolf woman SS oh, werewolf yeah. woman that werewolf. he did in in the Grindhouse trailer for oh, yeah. Tarantino and Rodriguez so she was good with being exposed mm-hmm. he cleared the set it was a closed set mm-hmm. he allowed whatever we needed an entire day to film that scene which was incredibly difficult we put a lot of work into it we were very careful very respectful of our Mm -hmm. our approach and our hands we were disgusted with ourselves with what what we were doing it was as ugly as anything i'd ever done right and it was this hard work and i and i i came home entirely beat up and just mentally well yeah dirty and ugly and you know interestingly uh malcolm was around and he, he gave Malcolm McDowell gave me good advice because he had done this clockwork orange. Right. Right. And he said, look, you know, if you, you know, you, you have a job to do, if you're going to do a job, you have to do it right. If you're playing Hitler, you've got to be great. Yeah. Do your job. And (laughs) and so those were good words of wisdom for me. Right. At that time. So I went for it and it was not easy. And, well, no. And then, lo and behold, what, a couple things happened. Um, one, the Weinsteins, Mr. Weinstein, Harvey, of all yep. people, recognized, huh, that scene's going to alienate a lot of our female audience. Mm-hmm. Wink, wink. Uh, yeah. And, and then Rob was more a little bit concerned about, well, look, if, if loose guys get their comeuppance here, it gives Michael Myers a bit of a moral... Um, yeah. place. It gives him a bit of a conscience and we're not sure we wanted to give the mask that conscience. So whatever reason that move, that scene that was essentially didn't make the Weinstein's theatrical release, but it's certainly on mm. Rob's DVD, yep. uh, the director's cut. It was as difficult. So at that point, Chris, it was the worst thing I'd ever done on film. Right. That Noel, Noel Clugs, biggest asshole. And it was it was all about, you know, a guy that hadn't been raised right, a guy that right. didn't get enough love, and a guy that was trying to manipulate. And it was kind of a nice arc. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, then we get cut to 31, and 
I want you to do the psycho head and, and where you've got this brother, David, you're playing schizo head. And, and that, that was great. And, and we were so colorful and, you know, uh, again, we're, we're in the build and, and, you know, I brought to the party, I was like, well, Rob, you know, things that bother me are, are men that don't wear shirts. All, <laughs> everyone out there listening, doesn't it bug you when some dude's walking down the street without a shirt on? Yes. I mean, it maybe didn't used to in the seventies. I'm not sure about that, but today if some guys walking around without a shirt on, Just, then yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's, it's a problem, I'm with you. Uh, you know, or that guy's, you know, that guy's sketchy. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm not talking about a guy jogging around right. the lake. You know, I'm talking about a guy that's going to, you know, Walgreens without <laughs> a shirt, you know. And so I said, so look, I see the wardrobe you have, but I just do not wear a shirt. He goes, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and then he's like, well, what else? I go, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, no shirt. I would like shoes, but uh, maybe just some sh- cutoffs, you know, yeah. for some reason. Because I knew the cutoffs and the 70 sensibility always appeals to Rob. So he goes, yeah, that's great. Yeah. He goes, you know what? Let's let's kick it up a notch. Let's make them Daisy Dukes. And let's put some really uh, women's underwear on underneath. And uh, so the lacing hangs out. And your uh, your ass is going to be hanging out. So everyone's going to – and I'm like, huh? And, uh, and then the next thing I know, I come out in Daisy Dukes, you know. And, of course, you know, I'm not a big guy, but I can get a little cut. So I'm trying right. to get cut up and stuff. And so, you know. And Rob comes out and he just writes on the my back in makeup, one hundred percent motherfucker, you know. And, um, and and then on the front he draws a ball and a dick pointed straight down, uh, you know. And he just writes on my front cock, you know. And and uh, you know and so now this is my wardrobe. And all of a sudden and and I felt you ladies out there, I can. Ass- respect the the you know the attention the you know every felt like everybody was checking my ass out you know and uh and so it was it was unsettling i use that word a lot but that's true really what we're we're going for yeah and then um and for rob you know i made a decision that he's got a song dragula yeah, and one of the verses is I I I can never die I will never die mm-hmm. and I just decided that's my mantra on this most of the uh, you know most of the others um, psychos uh, the heads as they, we were known yes were begging for their lives and didn't you know at the end I just decided I was not going to beg right at the end. but we you know again the reveal. Um, coming out of the hay bale was an idea that I had, I thought was super cool. Yes. You know, we're trying to figure out how can, how can I already be, how am I going to get in this environment? Uh, And how about if I'm already there and surprise motherfucker, I've got the (laughs) chainsaw, uh, which I got to name Mr. Dickhead. Yes. So that was a very difficult movie physically. It was also more difficult for me in the form of what we've been talking about, about how to have a character arc. Right. Because I was looking for reason, you know, there was reason for Noel Clug to be such 
a, a bad person mm-hmm. from his upbringing. There, there was reason for Adam Banjo's bravado and his arc and and yeah. whatnot. And and yet in this one, I I couldn't get as much a grasp on the reason because it wasn't like we were making all this money doing this or right. just hated people. I you know I I made it about that and yeah, um, it was a lot of work. And right. physically, it was a lot of work in our fight scenes, and it was oh yeah, it was my most difficult Rob Zombie movie of all of them. And um, well, I know Rob's a big you know, fan of the It's hard practical. to go do that and not have any likability other than a few, you know, fun colloquial sayings. You right, know? you just got fucked by the best. Yes, you know? yes. <laughs> um, these kinds of things, you know, quotable stuff, and so. Uh, you know, I, I would consult with Rob and he would, oh, so for instance, I like to, I like to give each character a soundtrack, Chris. And, yeah. and so, um, for, for psycho head, I was like, what is it? What is it? So I, you know, I reached out to Rob and he and I've done this before mm-hmm. and I said, you know, what, what do we got? And, you know, and I'm always going to lean towards something ethereal. You know, I was like, right. So Benny and the Jets, Elton John, he goes, nah, nah. <laughs> he goes, how about Black Betty by Ram Jam? <laughs> the, Ram, yes. the Ram Band. And uh, I'm like, perfect. And I found a version of that song. That song's great, by the way. We all uh-huh. love that. And so we would blast that. We would blast that before we'd come on and work. We would blast <laughs> that. Rob would have it blasted on loudspeakers and just so that everybody was in the mindset of who these two, you know, these yes. two fuckers were. And, uh, it was, it was great from that perspective. I found a version by spider bait that was ramped uh-huh. up, you know, yes. um, and really fun, really fun. So, uh, but a difficult, very difficult movie. I have to say, well, I know that Rob's a big fan of the practical, so I know there's not a lot of CGI stuff going on. No. So right. it's all you all physical all day, all the time. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, he likes he likes to get after it, and you know, for all of you who have been to his show, and I know there's a lot of you, he's oh, yeah. very physical on stage. Yeah, he is. <laughs> I mean, for what he does on stage, it's athletic. You mm-hmm. know, there's a part of me that's like, I couldn't do that. I couldn't. Two and a half hours. Yeah, Jeez. right. You know, and he doesn't and stop. <laughs> so, so there's an expectation he can do that. Like when he he showed me, he goes, look, if you lean down like this and he got down on his knees and did this yoga pose and this hay bale, I'm uh-huh. like, well, <laughs> well, sure. You can, you can do that. And I see how it works. I just don't know if I could do that. You know? And so I was able to kind of get it done. I was able to do it, but he's great. He's great. So everybody that's a fan and audience of Rob Zombies should be. And yes, expect more great stuff from him. Even, even still. Uh, well, hey, he's got great taste in actors like none other than Mr. Lou Temple. Oh, uh, it's kind of you to say. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, Thank man. You. Lou, I've had a great time talking with you. Where uh, where can the people find you out there? Well, if they interesting, want- as we're doing all this, so I, I do several things, but you can find me specifically at um, uh, on Twitter. It's very authentic or original. It's uh, uh, at Lou Temple actor. You know, yes. when I did The Walking Dead, they they make you get a Twitter, and I didn't really know much about what that was going to be, so I just <laughs> chose that as stupidly as. And then once you choose one, you build something you really can't tear it down. Right. Uh, Instagram <laughs> is just Lou Temple at Lou Temple, 
Uh, I do this thing on uh, Patreon, which is called The Texican, and yes. that's a storytelling uh, subscription base. And what we do there is we, you know, for a, a, a menial sum, you know, five bucks a month, you, you dive in and you help us tell these stories, help us tell your story. I, wow. I do a lot of writing on there, and I take a lot of uh, in, inspiration from uh, my patrons to mm-hmm. build stories. Uh, we do a lot of um, you know, behind the scenes video on films that I've got pictures and I just sort of expose you to the process and, and engage you and help you get going. So um, that's the Texican Blue Temple on Patreon. And then finally, there's uh, what I'm doing lately as I don't know, as a service is uh, <laughs> I'm reading Lonesome Dove, which is one of my favorite oh. books. And so I'm reading a chapter a day, and I've got some guest readers, some really cool people that are going to also be reading. And that's just on YouTube. That's on a a Lou Temple YouTube channel, which is totally free. So if you get get a hankering to do a trail ride, and you're stuck inside, and you want to get out on on the – on the uh, Charlie Goodnight Trail up into Montana, <laughs> um, throw in and we'll uh, we'll we'll get you up that that road with uh, with Gus and Call and <laughs> uh, and it's a it's a long run so you know it's it's a lot of reading uh, but it's great but and, I love uh, that just wanting to engage everybody in that. I mean, that's such a lost art is storytelling. I feel like that's something that not a lot of people really invest in anymore or understand how important it is to have such a good storytelling. But we do love it. We do yes. love it. And little do we know when we're out there doing TikTok, you're telling the story. Yeah. Your body's telling a story in that movement. You're, you've got a story to tell, and everybody wants to hear it. You don't think you've got a story to tell? You've got a story to tell. I want to hear your story. I want to hear it. Man, because when you start telling that story, it just lights up the world. And Absolutely. Absolutely. If you if you tell that story, you're serving not just yourself. You're serving everybody, and that's a that's a big help because yeah. um, because we we need that more than ever right now. And look, it's it's part of our DNA. It's part of the essence of who we are. We're we're looking for a story. We're out. It's 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 been the man's movement since he climbed out of the mud, man. Yeah. And and it's called. It's called it's called fishing, right, Chris? It's not right. called catching. We're no. not out. You know, it's not called um, hide and go find. It's right. hide and go seek, and that's what we love about stories: is the seek, the discovery, the what's under the bed. Yes. Uh, oh no! You know what's going to happen next? You know we love that, and, and that is entirely uh, serviceable for what we do. So um, it's not it's not for a few of us. It's right. for all of us. It's not. It's just. It's as practical as the air that you breathe. And, um, but right now, don't breathe any air right? within 10 feet of anybody, <laughs> but, all right? But you can uh, tune in online and see Lou Temple in his storytelling over and on his Patreon. Get over there. Check that out. This has been one of the best interviews I've ever had, and I definitely would love to have you back on sometime. Anytime. Just reach out, brother. It'd be my pleasure. Thank you so much, Lou. You stay safe out there, and you have a great day, my man. Likewise, and you as well. Very good. Bye-bye. Thank- see you, buddy.